Biblical history is indelibly marked by the foolishness of God. Over and over again in the Bible, the ways of God appear to be foolish according to the standards of rational thinking. For example, take the case of Noah, early in Scripture, an early story. The Lord told him to build a three-level barge, half the length of the Queen Mary, larger in area than 20 basketball courts, and as high as a four-story apartment building. And God commanded him to build it hundreds of miles away from any body of water. And then Noah was given 120 years to complete it. Can you imagine the ridicule he must have endured for a project that looked so foolish? And yet, when the appointed day of judgment came, the jeers were drowned by the torrential rains and floods, and Noah's ark didn't appear so foolish anymore. The same applies to Joshua's conquest of Jericho. That city was an Amorite stronghold. It had to be overthrown if the Israelites were to take the promised land, but it was locked up tighter than a nuclear test site. How could they get in? God's plan was that the Israelite men were to march around Jericho once a day for six days with seven priests blowing ram's horns while the Ark of the Covenant was carried behind them. And on the seventh day, this curious and odd display would be repeated and they were to circle the city now seven times and shout on command. And then the wall would collapse so the army could move in and take the city. Now, what army today would rely on such a strategy? Is this something the third armored combat brigade would, would train for? Well, hardly. Had Joshua lost his mind? No, he had chosen to follow the foolishness of God, and it brought him victory. Throughout Scripture, God has worked in ways that seem foolish to us. Another example is the reduction of Gideon's army from 32,000 men down to 300 against an enemy of the Midianites and the Amalekites who were described in the book of Judges as, as lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, camels without number, as the sand by the seashore in multitude. And the weapons in the hands of Gideon's army of 300 do you remember what they were? Trumpets and torches. Now what army would go to war 
with that kind of weaponry? Is this how the NATO forces are equipped? Hardly. That would be foolish. But not if it's the foolishness of God. The greatest example of the foolishness of God in Scripture is the gospel message about a Savior who lived his life as a carpenter and died on the cross as a common criminal. As Paul addressed the sophisticated Corinthians, he acknowledged their skepticism. And yet he spoke plainly. He said early in his first letter, we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The Corinthian audience lived with their noses up in the air, breathing the air of their own intelligence. Paul had to meet them on their sophisticated level, and he had to repeat to them over and over again how to be truly wise by trusting in the foolishness of God's wisdom. If you're visiting with us today, we have been in a sermon series since the beginning of the year from the Bible book of 1 Corinthians. And Pastor Jeff has already presented some, in some depth Paul's comparison between earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. And in this segment for today, we continue the series... But now, today, Paul is going to tell us how to live according to God's wisdom. The question may be asked, what difference does the wisdom of God make in my life today? How does becoming a Christian affect the way I live right now? Well, today, let's discover five practical steps to becoming a wise fool for Christ. Now our teaching begins in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and if you have your Bible and would like to follow along, just open there to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we begin at verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. The first step to becoming a wise fool for the Lord is this, and it just emerges from the scripture. Stay humble enough to keep learning. Stay humble enough to keep learning. 
The foolishness of God is something we must learn. And we don't learn it from the world. The world can't teach it to us. It is something we must learn from God, from Jesus. According to verse 18, the Corinthians were in danger of self-deception. They were deceiving themselves because they were enthralled by worldly wisdom. Paul keeps going back to that over and over in this letter. The Corinthians must see the contrast between Christianity and the world and be willing to accept the label fool. For example, Christ Christ teaches us to love our enemies. The world, however, prescribes the motto, get even. See, we have a difference. Jesus teaches his followers to give liberally to anyone in need. The world, however, lives by the rule, what is mine is mine. The world asks, what does a man own? Christ asks, how does he use it? To the world, the teachings of Jesus are backward. They're upside down. They're foolish. But Paul tells his readers that if they become foolish in the eyes of the world, they are becoming wise in the sight of God. This is something we must learn. Stay humble enough to keep learning. There's a wisdom of this world that works for the world, but it will not work for the church. The world depends upon things like promotion and prestige and power politics, the influence of money and social status. The church depends on prayer, the power of the Spirit, Humility, sacrifice, and service. It's a completely different value system, a completely different way of looking at things. And to the world, the ways of Christ are foolishness. But from God's perspective, it is total wisdom. And it's something we must learn. The early church had none of the secrets of success that seem so important to this age. They owned no property. They had no influence in government. They had no treasury. Peter said, silver and gold, have I none? Their leaders were ordinary people without specialized education. They brought in no celebrities to boost attendance, and yet they turned the world upside down. The church must be identified with the needs of the world, but it must not imitate the wisdom of the world. As Paul said, let no one deceive you. Don't be caught up in the standards and practices of worldly wisdom. Learn what it means to be fools for Christ. Paul continues now at verse 21, 
chapter 3, verse 21. Therefore, let no one glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The second practical step to becoming a wise fool from the, for the Lord is this. And it just emerges from that scripture. Don't exalt other people. Don't exalt other people. That too is worldly wisdom. Now these words appear in Paul's letter because the members of the Corinthian church were comparing leaders and they were idolizing some over others. Some had greater followings than others. And they were dividing themselves up according to the patterns of mere men. And that's dangerous in the church. And here's why. Exalting people perpetuates spiritual immaturity. If Jesus is obscured in the shadow of another, believers will not grow. People worship will limit your perspective. And another thing, idolizing people ultimately leads to a precipitous crash. If a leader is put up on a pedestal, a day may come when he will fall from that pedestal. And the people in Corinth were giving their they were giving their support and they were giving their strength and they were giving their hearts to different splinters, splinter groups of the body of Christ. And that was to surrender everything to a, to a petty thing by comparison. In exalting one above another, they confined their lives to narrow limits which should rather be limitless in outlook. He said to them in verse 21, All things are yours. And the idea is, why are you, why are you limiting yourself to a splinter? All things are yours. And that includes the ministries of all who preach and teach the gospel. And then he repeats the names. Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. Each one was prominent. Each one had his own personality. Each one had his own particular gifts. By limiting their allegiance to some one earthly leader... Well, they were limiting their growth. In Christ, they could have entered into possession of a fellowship and a love that is as wide and as high 
as the universe. Christ is infinitely larger than any one person. We're called to grow into the limitless expanse of his territory rather than elevate a mere person who at best can only offer limited human perspectives. Let me ask you, how many channels can we get nowadays on our televisions? Would you say hundreds? Hundreds? I mean, there are so many channels we don't, e there are many we haven't even heard of. When I was growing up on the prairies of eastern Montana, there was no television until 1955, and a large area of farmers got into a campaign. Someone gave leadership to the idea of establishing a television station in Williston, North Dakota, and that would serve a huge area. And it was named KUMV which stood for Upper Missouri Valley. <clears throat> but it only had one channel. <laughs> Just one. And it was channel eight. We did get a channel uh, from down from Canada, from Regina, Saskatchewan, but oh, it was so snowy you could hardly see it. But we did get channel eight, which was an NBC channel. So that's all we got. But nowadays, nowadays, how many channels are there? Hundreds, hundreds, hundreds. We get channels that feature news and sports and weather and inspiration and finance and history and documentary and science and politics and cooking and fishing and golfing. And someone else added garbage. It goes on and on, doesn't it? Now what if you said, of all the channels available to me, I prefer to keep my television on one channel alone. C-SPAN. Or maybe channel three, the community bulletin board channel. Well, what? You know, with so much information, with so much, so much out there, who would limit themselves to just one segment of information when the whole array of subjects is available to us? Well, Paul said, that's what you're doing at Corinth by elevating one preacher over another, or by limiting your preference to that one preacher over the others, you are missing out on the richness of the gifts that other preachers have to offer as well. By the way, do you have a guru preacher? I mean, he's the one or she's the one. Are you experiencing a handicap to your spiritual growth
by limiting your learning to only one viewpoint. Preachers must never be treated like politicians. Don't ever treat a preacher like a politician. Perhaps we cannot help but have our personal preference when it comes to the way different preachers minister the word, but we must not permit our personal preferences to become divisive prejudices. When people divide themselves between preachers and some followers go this way, others are led this way, others go this way, depending on the preacher, what do we have? What do we have in the body of Christ? What we have is division. What we have is fracture. What we have is broken, a broken fellowship. That's what goes on in the world. That's worldly wisdom. That's the party spirit where followers' opinions are constantly measured by who's following whom, where the goal is popularity and greater numbers of supporters, where there are winners and losers and where all are competitors. It's a sad day when worldly wisdom gets into the church. When earthly wisdom gets a foothold in the body of Christ, that's a sad day. But it appears that that was what was happening at the church in Corinth. And, and according to Paul, the only guru we should have is Jesus Christ. All things are yours, and you are Christ's. He supersedes all other earthly guides and philosophies. So then, how should we treat those whom we respect? How should we treat those who teach us and lead us and whom we respect and have confidence in? How should we? Paul answers that, chapter 4, as he continues, chapter 4 and verse 1. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Servants. That's what preachers are. They're not politicians. Don't make them into politicians. Don't treat them like politicians. All they are are servants. This word servant, it has a special meaning. It means an under rower, an under rower. Can you picture the big ships? They didn't have engines to propel them. All they had was these, all these slaves down below oaring the ship forward. Under rowers. All the slaves down below were serving their captain 
Jesus. Jesus is our captain. Paul says, that's all we are. Under rollers, that's all we are. And Jesus is our captain. Now, that's all we are. Servants. Not politicians seeking popularity. Regardless of how prominent or authoritative, all of us believers are merely oarsmen on a ship responsible to our leader, our captain, the captain of our vessel, Jesus Christ. And Paul says, that's all I am. And that's all Apollos is. And that's all Cephas is. An under rower. A steward of the mysteries of God. Paul is saying, don't give to an under rower the position of manning the rudder of your life. If you keep Jesus in first place, he will steer you to his wisdom. Don't exalt other people. Exalt Jesus. He, he is the one who has gifted all of his servants. Now Paul continues in verse 2. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. This is now a third practical step in becoming a fool for Christ. Exercise faithfulness. Exercise The Corinthians were evaluating preachers according to their fluency and eloquence, by charisma, personal charm, and outwardly impressive abilities. But you know, folks, that's how the world evaluates its leaders. That's the way of the world, to look good, to perform to some standard that shows obvious talent, as though the preacher is like a, like a musician playing a piece for the, for the purpose of entertainment and, and approval and applause of the audience. That's worldly thinking. That's worldly wisdom. But what if a preacher lacks charisma? What if his or her talents are are not public in their best use. How does God evaluate our service for him? What quality should the members of the Corinthians examine and appreciate in regard to these stewards of God's mysteries? Well, there it is in verse 2. It is required in stewards that one be found Faithful. Faithful. There it is. The Bible doesn't say it's required of a servant that he or she be entertaining 
or charismatic or humorous or smart or privileged or attractive. Those are all worldly expectations. What God requires is simply faithfulness. And that's something we can all do. That's something we can all be. That's within our reach. The simple call to faithfulness. Faithfulness is what daily brings us back to the foot of the throne of God to ask, Lord, how can I serve you instead of how popular will I become? Or what sort of prestige will I gain? The most important thing in becoming a fool for Christ is faithfulness. And that is never measured by worldly standards. Noah was faithful. Gideon was faithful. Joshua was faithful. Moses, Abraham, Paul, Apollos, Cephas. These were faithful leaders, all of them servants who chose to follow the wisdom of God contrary to the wisdom of the world. And the greatest compliment to their lives of service was their faithfulness to the Word of God and not their striving after the applause of the people. Do you worry about what others think of you? Is that something that should be a big concern to us? What other people think? How much they approve of us? How big a following we can gain? Here are the words of Paul in verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. The fourth practical way the wisdom of God will affect your life today is this. Treat lightly others' opinions of you. That's kind of hard, isn't it? When we serve the Lord publicly, our every action is evaluated and judged. We become spectacles and we're constantly feeling evaluated. Some will compliment us, others will criticize us. But we shouldn't dwell on either response or, or we'll become like the Pharisees whose object in life was simply to look good and give the impression that they were serving God when the applause of the people was what was most important to them. Paul even says he does not evaluate or fixate upon himself too much. Only God, this is the reason, because only God knows the intents of the heart and only God can be an impartial judge. Paul endured a lot of criticism especially from his former colleagues 
in the Jewish hierarchy. But it didn't make him too upset because he knew of another judgment that was far more important, and that was God's judgment, God's evaluation, God's approval. And isn't that what we want most of all? Is the approval of God. The approval of people is so, it's almost like a mist. You know, you can see it and then it's gone. It's so fragile. We can be up in the poles one day and then down in the poles the next. But that's operating according to earthly wisdom, worldly wisdom. The only one we want approval from is God himself, God himself. Critiques often arise from worldly expectations and measurements. But since those templates don't apply in God's work, we treat them lightly. Paul marched to a different drumbeat, and so human evaluations were not very useful because his work was measured by a different standard, the standard of God. Now this leads us now to our final aspect of living according to the wisdom of God. Reading now verses 4 and 5, chapter 4, verses Four and five. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then, each one's praise will come from God. Paul's final point is this. Leave judgment and criticism with God. Let him be the judge. Let him be the one who evaluates. Leave it with him. If you have chosen to follow God, it will make you look foolish to the world. They won't understand you. Your family, your friends, your neighbors will wonder about you and they will think you have gone crazy. But if you're following God, that's what you may expect from the world. Because as we've been saying, the world and the church have different ways of looking at things. The most important thing is that you are right with God. Don't be concerned with what others think of you. Follow God. Trust Him. Follow His word. Serve Him faithfully. His judgment is what matters. Now there's a place for honest and loving criticism. If the critic is right, then he has helped us. But if the critic is wrong, 
then we must help him. Either way, the truth is strengthened. Now, the problem in Corinth was division that occurred by partisan criticism. Each subgroup in the church was tearing down the other subgroup, led by their favorite preachers. And their motive was not at all spiritual. They were promoting division by being partisan. And that is when the church is acting like the world. When there's party spirit, we are acting just like the world. Just watch the news. How divided our world has become. Unfortunately, that pressure is always on us. And many times we can reflect what's going on in the culture. Let's leave that out there. Let's leave partisanship out there and leave it safe to be in the church where there is harmony and unity. We're finally getting to the season now of gardens and yards. Just this week, my yard really greened up. And I think I'm going to have to mow this coming week, finally. It's late. As we're thinking about yards and gardens, I'm thinking about two kinds of hoses that we use in the gardening season. There are the regular garden hoses, and then there are what we call soaker hoses. Our service for Christ can resemble either one or the other, either a regular garden hose or a soaker hose. With the garden hose, you know, you stick the handle on the end and you can squeeze the, the handle and you can control, you can control the flow. You can uh, dictate how and when and where to water. And with our nifty sprayer, we can even stop the water altogether. The flow of Christ's love often will depend upon our mood or how much sleep we got the night before. And with a big spray, we can sometimes get a lot of attention. In contrast, is the soaker hose. The soaker hose waters the ground indiscriminately. Dozens of holes let the water loose without a shut-off valve, without a shut-off switch. Life-giving water oozes out all over the place, and there's no concern for the timing or the direction of the flow. Isn't it true that if God has turned on the refreshing water, the water of life in our lives, why should we hold it back from anyone? He has an infinite supply. Are you a garden hose in your service for the master? Must you always be in charge? Must you always dictate how and when and what happens? Or are you just like 
the soaker hose. And out of your life, it just oozes constantly, indiscriminately, nourishing and watering. Wherever you're in contact, there's your influence as a blessing, helping, helping it to, helping it to grow, helping to grow the church, helping to, to nourish the body of Christ. Paul has taught us today how to serve according to a better way without concern for the evaluation of the world. And the person who adopts these five principles into his life will, will be set apart from the common approaches of this world. He has counseled us to be teachable and to learn this better way. Not to exalt one leader over another. To be faithful. Not to value too highly the opinions of others. And to let God be the judge instead of people. Which of those five things might you be struggling with today? Maybe there's just one of those. After first service, somebody said, boy, you know what? I've got five things to work on this week. God's Word makes it clear. God's Word teaches us a different way of living, doesn't it? As the body of Christ, we don't operate like the world. We mustn't let the world's practices enter into our midst if we do that, no wonder, no wonder there is division. No wonder there is fracture. How could it be when, when we're all under rowers? How could it be if we're all servants? If we're all stewards of the mysteries of God and we're all serving our one captain, Jesus Christ. If you struggle in any one of these areas, ask the Lord to help you, help you. And washing the pride from your eyes, he will replace your foolishness with his wisdom. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for meeting with us today and for speaking to us from your word. As we review the pages of scripture, we are reminded of generations past who who struggled with things we do as well. Humanity is consistent through the years, through the centuries, and we always face many of the same human issues. And I pray today you would let the words speak to our hearts, draw us together more closely, heal our divisions, heal our wounds, May our body, the body of Christ, not at all resemble the fracture and brokenness and chaos of the world. May it be safe to come here. May we find shelter here.
from the hurts and insults that go on out there in the world. May your spirit prevail over us. Guide us as the mighty captain, pointing us toward the other shore, the other side, your kingdom, which is coming soon. And may we all faithfully serve in whatever corner we are. And may we be like soaker hoses, indiscriminately nourishing the life around us and helping it grow and become stronger. Guide us that direction. Heal us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.